Ridge Kids. We'd love for them to be a part of Vine Kids Time going right out this side door here with Mr. Matt. Uh, fifth and sixth grade-ish area. We're going out that back door. We got a special ministry opportunity for our fifth and sixth and seventh grade age youngsters. Love for you to be a part of all of those um, things that are going on as well. So if you are here for the first time, uh, we are actually in week 16 of a journey. We're kind of taking to the gospel of John. I love to teach and preach through scripture. We like to look at it in its context. We like to examine every word. We believe very strongly in the authority of scripture and that this is in fact God's word. It's his very breath. The word theopunestos in the Greek means the very breath of God, right? It is, it is scripture breathed to us. And so we take it very seriously, the opportunity to gather together to study it. So we've been working our way through the book of John, every verse, every sort of word. And we've made it uh, 16 weeks now, and we're beginning chapter 5. And I mentioned a second ago that we're in the middle of this section of the book where John is focused on showing us the deity of Jesus Christ through his encounters with people. Now, the gospel of John is different from all the other sort of books in the New Testament and different from the other three gospels because John has a singular focus. And his singular focus is that he wants us to see that Jesus Christ is in fact God. The entire point of John's gospel is not to tell a historical account of Jesus' life, but instead to show us the deity of Christ, to say this Jesus who walked the earth, who healed the blind and fed 5,000 and did all those things and spoke these incredible words was in fact God's son, who was in fact God in the flesh. And John is concerned with that. And so everything in his book is pointing us to the person of Jesus Christ, which makes my goal really simple as a teacher. And that's just that I want you to see Jesus. That's it. Well, we're in the middle of this section where Jesus is having encounter with people, having encounters with people, not perfect people or super religious people, but kind of broken, bruised, and battered people, people that are much more like me and you than we think. And he's revealing his true identity, his deity to them, and John is showing us those things. And last week we looked at Jesus' encounter with the uh, royal official from Capernaum who had the dying son, how Jesus spoke in the middle of his desperation and asked this guy to trust him. We spent three weeks before that looking at the encounter that Jesus had, the encounter Jesus had with the woman at the well, if you remember. These are just people. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 5, and Jesus is going to have an interaction with a man who has spent 38 years of his life paralyzed. And I think we're going to see that you and I have a lot more in common with him than we care to even imagine. Now, as I was looking through this, I realized that back in September, I used a large part of this story as I, we were walking the book of Acts. We were wrapping up that two-year study, and I was doing lessons that we had learned from the book of Acts, right? I think there were five of them, and this was one of them. I used a lot of the stories. Some of these details, if you were here in September, may sound familiar, but we're going to look at the story from a little bit of a different angle. Now, uh, have you ever heard the phrase or the saying, um, you can't see the forest for the trees? Anybody ever heard that? It's pretty popular. It actually dates back to like 1546 when we first find it in literature. It's a sort of an idiom that is pretty popular. And, and for about 30 years of my life, I completely misunderstood it. I never understood it, in fact, because I thought that what people were saying was you can't see the forest or the trees, right? Which is ridiculous because if you can't see them, then you're blind or you shouldn't be driving. You can't see traffic or cars or whatever. But like my mom would say, well, Treb, Get your head up because, you know, you can't see the forest or the trees. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means. Well, about three years ago, I was reading an article on a plane in a magazine, and the phrase was written out. And it was like the universe opened up to me when I realized that it's not or, but it's the word for. 
Like you can't see the forest for the trees. It's not or the trees. And I felt like all of a sudden my life had been like, oh, what a lie I had been. But the phrase is actually really important. If you've not heard of it or heard it, it's, it's, it's pretty significant to our spiritual lives because what it implies is that you can't see this entire amazing thing because you're focused on the one singular thing, right? So you can't see the, the whole forest right around you because you're looking at the trees. And the idea is simply that when we get focused on a singular problem or a struggle or a hurt or a pain, we can't see how God moves all around us because we're so focused typically on that one thing, right? So it has a lot of application in our spiritual life, and I think it's going to play itself out in our encounter today really well. When we get become singularly focused on this one thing, we can't see how God is moving and, and driving and calling us and doing and things around us. And on essentially, for our spiritual life, we can't see the forest for the trees. And so uh, we're going to take that approach as we look at that. And we're going to be in the book of John chapter 5. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open it up um, to John chapter 5. If you don't, there's one right there. You're welcome to it. I want you to use it. I want you to see it. If you don't own a Bible, take this one with you. They're not fancy. You're going to have it. Um, we'd love for you to take it. But we're going to be in it every single week. We are in it every single week. There will never be a week where you show up to church here that we're not in. And if, if there ever is, just get up and go. You're free to leave um, because we will then have lost our way. So our whole goal is to be in this thing every single week. We will be in every week. Bring yours or use this one. So John chapter 5. Uh, before we go there and open up, as we always do, let's just pray that God would teach our hearts this morning. So let's go before him and ask him to teach us. Lord, you are great. And... You are big, and you are better than everything that we know or deserve. Lord, each one of us has walked in here today with a whole host of things. Some of them are fears and failures. Some of them are, are questions and doubts. Some of us wonder if you're even real. Some of us are sitting here just because we're supposed to. Some of us are here for the very first time, not even sure why we saw a sign we thought we'd stop by. We're here from all different walks of life and all different reasons. But I believe, God deeply that you will meet each one of us right where we are. I have beyond a shadow of a doubt, I believe that. I believe that you will meet us in our fear and our failures and our doubts and our insecurities and our struggles, that you will meet us in the middle of all those things. You don't require us to make our lives perfect, to clean it all up, to be presentable to you. You meet us in our mess. You're incredible. So Lord, we ask that right now as we begin to open your word, you would meet us in our mess. You would meet us in our struggles. You would meet us in our fears and failures. You would meet us in our triumphs and our joys and our greatest victories. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you this morning. Maybe it's just something simple. Just ask the Lord to teach your heart this morning. Pray for someone beside you. We do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. Sunday morning is not just about you, but be praying that God would move in other people. Even if you don't know their name, just pray for them. Pray that God would reveal himself to them. If you're sitting next to your spouse or your kids, pray for them. Pray that God would, would teach their heart. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. We thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place, that you are that good. Um, Lord, we ask that you would teach our hearts, <clears throat> that we would have an encounter with your word, and it would change us. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So we're going to look at the 15 verses that come right out of John chapter 5 as Jesus has an encounter with this 
man who has been handicapped or disabled for 38 years of his life. So we'll read it, and we'll just kind of explore it together and see what happens. So sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. And here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he learned that he had been in this condition for a long time and asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes in ahead of me. And Jesus said, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is a Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to pick up my mat and walk. And so they asked him, who is this fellow who said to you, pick up your mat and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So Jesus is in town for a festival, which means that Jerusalem is probably full of people. There's probably a, a whole huge host of crowded streets and peoples and things. And in Jerusalem, next to the east kind of side of the city, there was a gate called the Sheep Gate, which is now called the Gate of Stephen after the first martyr. But in that Sheep Gate, there was a pool that was covered with these colonnades, which is like kind of marble or stone pillars. And that was called the sheep gate because people would bring their sheep in from the pastures there to be sold or sacrificed, right? It wasn't the main gate of the city, but it was sort of the east side kind of part of the city where the animals would be brought in and they would probably drink out of that pool as well. And then they would be sold or sacrificed, right? So it was outside of the sort of main entrance towards the temple. It was just sort of a throwaway gate. And we learn from that text that there was a whole group of people, right? Broken people in that culture. Those that were considered outcasts or unclean or those that were handicapped and fell into those categories. They would gather at that pool because there was a legend that every once in a while an angel would come down and the angel would stir those waters. And the first one that got in the waters after the angel stirred them would be healed of whatever they'd got, right? That was the legend. Most likely untrue, of course, but it was the legend. And so what would happen is each day, right, people would bring those in that society or culture or city that were there to that pool, and they would lay there in hopes that the waters would stir and they might be the first ones down there. That's why this thing existed. It's why all these people were laying around there. In fact, John tells us that there were a whole host of people laying around this pool, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, right? But there was one man in particular who had been there, who had been an invalid, who was there, who had been there for 38 years, right? And Jesus saw him lying there, and he had been in this condition for a long time. So Jesus, well, there's a couple of fascinating things here. We won't get into it too much. But Jesus is over here on the east side of the city hanging out at the pool where all the crippled people are right? It's a festival. Jesus is in town for a festival. All the people are up the temple. In fact, this guy gets healed and he ends up going to the temple because that's where all the people are. But Jesus, for some reason, because he's Jesus and he's awesome, he's hanging out on the east side of the city by the sheep gate at the pool where all the broken people are, which is amazing and a story for another time. 
But he's there and he learns because he starts asking, right, or, you know, who's this guy? Well, this is so-and-so, and he's been like this since most likely birth, 38 years, I'm guessing, is most likely birth or close to there. And he'd been in this condition for a long time. And Jesus learns this. And so he goes over to this man, having learned that this has been his life for 38 years. He has been in this condition. He's relied on people to pick him up every day, take him on his mat, which was more really just like a woven straw pallet, right? Because you couldn't just lay in the dirt, drag that woven straw pallet to this pool every day. And they would lay it there and he would lay there in hopes that this legend were true that the angel would come down and stir these waters and he might get down there. Somehow, he'd get down there first amongst all these people that were waiting for some kind of miracle. So Jesus learns of this man and he walks up to him and asks him a singular question. Do you want to get well? Which is really a remarkable question, right? I mean, at first glance, it's like, well, of course, right? You want to get well. But the the real question Jesus is asking is not necessarily a surface question about whether or not you want to walk. Because there's actually a Greek phrase for that. Do you want to be healed or do you want to walk? It's a totally different sentence. What Jesus is actually saying here is, correctly translated, is do you want to be made whole? Right? Do you want to be made well? He's not simply asking him if he would like to walk. He's saying, do you want to be made whole? Because Jesus always sort of addressed the deeper issue. We've looked at this for the past weeks, right? The woman at the well and her struggle and who she was and the outcast she was in culture. He even did it with a royal official last week, right? When he asks this guy to trust him and it says that he took Jesus at his word. But he looks at him and he says, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made whole? And, and this man replies, He doesn't reply with what we think he's going to say, which is absolutely like, please, whatever it takes. He says, sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water stirred. When I'm trying to get in, someone else gets down ahead of me. So he doesn't say yes or no. He just says, I don't think you understand. Sir, listen to me. It's a crazy question you're asking because it doesn't matter if I want to get well or not. It doesn't matter if I want to be made whole because it's impossible. Because every time the waters get stirred or someone says, hey, the waters are stirring, I can never get down there. Look at me. I'm laying on this mat. I can't get down there. So your question is dumb. It doesn't matter if I want to get well. What matters is I can't get down to the magic waters. That's really what this guy is saying. And Jesus says, do you want to be made whole? And he says, I don't think it matters if I want to be made whole. It doesn't matter what I want. What matters is that I can't, and I can't get down there. Somebody always beats me to it every single time. Then Jesus said to him, right, standing right there, get up and pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured, and he picked up his mat and walked. And I I love this interaction because most of the time in Scripture when we see people healed, It's this sort of remarkable faith thing. Think about last week. So last week, this royal official comes in from Capernaum, and he's desperate. His son is on his deathbed. He's dying. He doesn't know much about Jesus, but he just knows if he can get to Jesus, something could happen, right? And he walks those 15, 16 miles from Capernaum down to Canaan, and he comes before Jesus, and he says, Sir, please come back with me to Capernaum because my son is dying. And Jesus 
basically kind of rebukes him and a whole bunch of people standing around saying, you know, if you don't see miraculous signs, you don't believe. And, and the guy kind of ignores Jesus and he looks at him and he says, sir, I don't think you understand. Like, I am desperate. You have to come. He's dying. And Jesus said, basically, you can go. Your son will live. And this man right there in our verse from last week says that he took Jesus at his word and he left. And we talked about last week the, the power of being able to say, I believe you. God, I trust that you are who you say you are. That I believe that when you speak, it's you and it's real. And I believe in the things that you say and I want to trust them. Most of scripture is filled with that, right? People that are putting some faith into this person of Jesus Christ. We don't really see that here though, right? We just see a guy who's frustrated. For 38 years of his life, this is who he is. It's his identity. It's what he's been labeled as. For 38 years, in that culture especially, he was labeled as a crippled person. He was actually unclean. The reason they were all on the east side of the city over there by the sheep gate is because they couldn't be at the temple. Because if one of those people had an encounter with someone who was religiously clean, it would make that person unclean and they would have to leave the city. Because they believed that physical ailments were tied to a sinful condition, either you or your parents. And so not only were you crippled, blind, lame, whatever, but you were unclean. And everywhere you went, you had to tell people you were unclean so that you wouldn't accidentally bump into somebody. And so what did they do? They gathered together away from everyone outside the edge of the gate, and they would sit by the pool where the animals were brought in to drink and then be slaughtered. And he's hopeless. For 38 years, I've sat here. From the, when I was a kid, they brought me here. Hey, the waters are stirring, and I never make it. And so when Jesus says, do you want to get well, we don't see this sort of great act of faith like the royal official that takes Jesus at his word and says, I'm going home. No great faith. God just moves, right? God just moves. He says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk, right? And at once, the man was cured, and he picked up his mat, and he walked. What's incredible about this is that this guy has no idea who he's talking to. Now, all over the area, people knew about Jesus. In fact, the royal official walked 16 miles when he heard that Jesus was just in town. Everybody had heard the miracle stories. They'd heard how he had done incredible things back in Jerusalem or, or the things that he had just done that were miraculous. But this guy seems to have no idea that he's standing here talking to Jesus, the one who has the power and the ability to not only heal him but to give life. Right, who just a few verses earlier had given back life to a son who was dying. He has the Redeemer of the world standing in his presence, and yet he can't even see it because he's so focused on the stirring of the magic waters, right? On some level, we can't see the forest, great move of God standing right in our presence because we're focused on the tree which is the only hope I have is to get down there, and it's hopeless, man. All right? I find that remarkable. This guy has no clue. In fact, he doesn't have any clue even after he's healed. So then things shift a little bit, right? It says the day on which he was healed was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. So Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And the guy goes, Okay, he gets up and picks up his mat and he walks 
and he leaves the area. And the Jews, really what we're talking about, the Pharisees, had see, see this guy walking around carrying his mat. And they stop him and they say, what are you doing? It's the Sabbath. You can't work. You can't carry your mat. The law forbids it. It's not really that the law forbids that, actually. The law forbid working on the Sabbath. Sabbath was designed to be a day of rest. The Pharisees had created an entire existence around the law. So what they did was they took the Mosaic law and they created an oral tradition around it. And they believed that the oral tradition that they created was to be held on the exact same standard as the law itself. And so the question became, if we're not to work, what defines work? So if we're supposed to keep the Sabbath holy and worship the Lord, how do we know what work is? And they had created an entire oral tradition around things like that. They had told what kind of knot you could tie, how many steps you could take, You could get this bucket of water, but you couldn't do this bucket of water. I mean, literally, the law had been parsed out from a legalistic standpoint to the core. And the Pharisees' entire job was to make sure that everybody kept that oral tradition, which they believed was on par with Scripture. And it's why Jesus so often finds himself in these kind of contentious arguments with Pharisees. Because it's over the legalization of what God put in place Right, the law that God put in place, they had legalized its sort of keeping. Well, somewhere along the way, they had decided that it was work to carry your mat. So you couldn't carry things because that's work. And so they saw this crippled guy who they all knew, mind you, because Jerusalem's a small city. Right? At the time, it was really small and compact. Most people lived outside of its walls. For 38 years, this guy had been there, right? He had been at that pool or he had been at the temple gate begging. They'd seen him around. And yet here is this crippled guy walking, carrying his mat. And the Pharisees see him and they say, what are you doing? Why are you carrying your mat? You can't do that. You're breaking the law. They don't care that he had just been healed from 38 years of laying around, right? And they go, you're breaking the law. And the guy's response is pretty awesome, right? He said, well, the man who made me well said to pick up my mat and walk. So I'm kind of just going to do that, right? And they ask him, well, who's this? Who in the world made you well and told you to pick up your mat and broke the Sabbath by having you carry this straw mat that you laid on for 38 years? And the guy who has healed had no idea. He didn't even know who Jesus was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd, and later Jesus found him at the temple, because the guy had gone to the temple, probably to worship, probably to honor God, goes to the temple, and Jesus sees and says, see you're well, stop sinning, or something worse may happen, basically making the connection that sin and death is so much worse than laying around as an invalid for 38 years. And the man went away, and he told the Jews that it was Jesus. So he said, I figured it out. It was Jesus. The story is, man, it's, it's really amazing for a bunch of reasons. It's amazing because I find myself much more like um, this crippled person than I care to admit, right? And I think it begs just a couple of questions, and I'm not going to get into them too much, but it begs a couple of questions that I think we have to ask ourselves, and I think I have to ask myself when it comes to my own understanding of, of Jesus and what I see, Right? And the first question that we really have to deal with is the one that Jesus actually asks this man. And that is, do you want to get well? 
And it seems like a ridiculous question, right? I mean, it would seem like a ridiculous question to this guy, like, here you are for 38 years, do you really want to get well? Do you really want to be made whole? But if you think about it, the question's actually a really powerful one because he's not just talking about physically walking. He's actually going to meet this guy later at the temple and talk to him about something much more spiritual, right? Stop sinning. But the question is really a powerful one. Because most of us, well, I'll take it back, all of us are broken. We are bruised and we are battered and we've got issues and we've got struggles, right? And we become, as sad as it is, very comfortable in those. We become very comfortable even in the things that we hate. Now stay with me for a minute because this is just true. And it's hard to say out loud, but it's just true. Most of us have a behavior or a thought pattern or something in our life that we know is killing us, yet we continue to entertain it. Most of us have things in our life that we know God is calling us out of that are eating our souls alive, that are destroying us from the inside out, whether it's a, an action, whether it's actions, whether it's thoughts, whether it's destructive behavior, whether it's just hate or aggression or resentment. And we know in our hearts that it is awful, but it's all we've known and we found some kind of comfort there. Even though we know it's awful and destroying us, we don't really know how to get rid of it because we've made it home in our heart. Now, we don't like to say this out loud, but that's where we live. That even though we know God is calling us to quit thinking about ourselves that way, about this person that way, about the reflection that we see in the mirror, about what we see, about what we believe, about our own whatever, our own behavior, or action, whatever that is, even though we know it is destructive. We're petrified of walking away from it because it gives us some resemblance of control. Right? This is what I've known. Think about this guy. For 38 years, man, this is what he's known. It's his identity. It's who he was. It's not that he didn't want to walk, right? It's that he's sitting in the middle of it looking at Jesus going, what are you really going to do? I mean, this is just me. And I think a lot of us truthfully are there. We have the God of the universe that says, do you want this whole life of yours to be turned around? And we look at God and go, well, this is just what I've got. I mean, I'm 30, I'm single, or I'm this, or I still don't have a job, or I don't really know what I want to do, or I'm just, I'm broke, or I'm just this, or my marriage is, you know, 15 years in and this is it. I mean, this is what I know, man. So you ask me if I want to get well, and the question is, I don't really know. Because I'm not sure I'm willing to let go of that. Now, we'd never say that out loud especially to the Lord, but it's churning through our hearts. We don't put the words to it, but it goes through mine all the time, right? And I think a lot of us have asked ourselves, well, maybe this is as good as it gets, or told ourselves that. And Jesus' question to this guy is a really profound one. Do you want to be made whole? That's really the translation there. Do you want to be made whole? See, I think we want Jesus to fix those things, right? Let me trust you more, take this out. But if he asks me if I want to be made whole, that's a different question altogether, isn't it? I don't really know. I want to say yes, but I'm really afraid of what yes means, right? What does that cost me? What do I have to let go of? What do I have to stop believing? The lies that I've got to stop selling myself. Well, Jesus says that question. I believe it's a question he asks each one of us, and that is, do you really want to be made whole? And the answer that all of us should be shouting is yes, but of course, most of the answer that we actually say in our hearts is that I don't know. Sometimes I'd just rather sit here and be frustrated and resentful than actually forgive somebody. 
Or I've looked in the mirror for 30 years and I don't like what I see. What am I going to start changing that now? And God's saying, I breathe life into that body. Like I call you beloved and yet you continue to buy lies about yourself. Well, I do it because I'm comfortable living there. Not because I want to. First question we really have to deal with is, do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be made well? And the second one is right on its heels, right? And that one is, do you believe that Jesus can make you well? And it's an entirely different question because I believe that most of us as followers of Christ would say, absolutely, I believe that for someone else. I said, I'm not sure. (laughs) Siri's got a male British voice, which is awesome, by the way. Most of us, right? Most of us sit there and we say, I believe that God can do that for somebody else. I really believe he can. I believe he can do the miraculous. I believe that. I believe that God can turn someone else's life around. He can turn their debt around. He can turn their heart around. He can restore their marriage. He can fix their brokenness. I believe that. I'm just not sure that I believe he can do it in me. Right? I'm great at this, man. I believe that God can heal you and change you and fix you and redeem you and do all those things in you. But I am quick to wonder if he can really do them in me. And I think most of us have to deal with that question, right? Do you believe that God can make you well? Do you believe that Jesus standing there looking at you after your 38, 25, 42 years, whatever you've got, standing there saying, do you want to be made well? Do you believe that that God can actually fix your situation? I'm not talking about just physically. I'm talking about the wholeness of your heart. Do you believe that God can mend a broken marriage, can mend your failures? Do you believe that God can actually take your doubts the ones that you're sitting with right now in this place, your doubts, and you go, God, I don't even know if you're real. Do you believe you can take that end and connect it with truth and make your heart whole? Do you believe that in your heart? Do you believe that God can make you whole, that he can restore, that he can redeem? The answer to that question is incredibly important because the God of the universe stands in front of us and says, quit waiting for magic waters to be stirred so that hopefully this one situation will go away. It's not about magic waters. It's about the God of the universe that wants to change your entire perspective, right? See, the guy can go down in those waters if that were true legend and fix his legs and not his heart. And that's what we want God to do. We want him to fix the peripheral of our lives and not address what's going on in here because I'm petrified of that. So fix my marriage, fix my financial situation, fix my broken relationships, fix my doubts, but don't deal with this because we're focused on the magic waters, thinking that's going to make things better. And the God of the universe is standing in front of you saying, do you want to be made whole? Not fixed. Do you want to be made whole? It's an entirely different question. It's a petrifying one. And the third question that I think we have to deal with on some level, and again, I'm not answering any of those. I'm just putting them out there. The third question we have to deal with, which is really more for one of us as a church, is really, are we more consumed and concerned with tradition and rules and things than we are with the life sitting next to us? Now, I think most of us would say no. I mean, we kind of have this sort of ragtag thing going on here, and so there's a lot of freedom here. But most of us have been in places, and even this place, true, where we get concerned with how things go, more so than we are with people. <clears throat> I was doing uh, youth ministry in Austin for years and years before I moved here. And I was working with a kids doing high school age kind of ministry, and I had this kid that I had been meeting with 
pretty much a couple times a month for about a year. And <clears throat> his life was a real mess. His parents were going through a divorce. His dad was an alcoholic. It was a disaster. He did not believe at all that God existed. Um, he just didn't believe that there was a God that would let him have to deal with the stuff he was dealing with. And it's not uncommon to a lot of the things that, you know, we've dealt with or you've dealt with. But, you know, as a 16-year-old kid, it's just heavy. And so we spent a lot of time talking about that and the reality of God and all those things. And I finally convinced him after about a year to just come to church, right? He didn't come to youth group, didn't know those things. Just, just come, right? So this kid, to my surprise, one day I was sitting down front, and this kid wanders in the back about 10 minutes late, uh, to our service there at this church that we were in. And he didn't know where to sit, so he just stood in the back at the wall. Right? And he was in kind of cargo shorts and a baseball hat, and you know, I wasn't wearing, we, it was a kind of a dressier church, if you will, unlike whatever we got going on here. Right? <clears throat> I, got, I got a hole in my jeans, by the way. Not that you're not dressed nice, huh? but this was a dressier place. So he's standing there in his hat, and... Um, after worship was over, a very well-meaning guy who I love and I know to this day, I care about him, I think he's great, and he's a great older gentleman, walks up to this kid and he says, listen, we're really glad you're here, but if you wear that hat in here again, you can't come back. And the kid never came back. And he was petrified, right? Because his encounter with church was not one of, hey man, with all your struggles and issues and failures and divorce, he didn't even ask any of that. Any of those things aren't welcome here, but this is a place of respect for the Lord. So take your dadgum hat off, right? And I think it's an extreme example, but a very true one. But we get hung up in that, right? I mean, we get hung up in those places like, you know, the right things and saying the right words and doing all this correctly and making sure they don't sit here or you do this or we only do this or our tradition builds this. And those traditions create spaces where we forget that there is a life sitting next to us who maybe walked in these doors for the very first time after having driven by the street like 10 times and just finally decided to try because they had nowhere else to go. And they use all the wrong words and language. and They don't know the right phrases and they don't dress like we would or whatever. And we get hung up in that. And our church is, man, we are, we are a hot little mess. And we've got all kinds of growing edges and issues. And we pick up our friends from Sooner Haven, and they are loud and crazy. And sometimes we pick up our homeless friends from Good Home Park, and they sleep in the back. And sometimes we just don't do it right. And as a church, I want to live in that place somewhere. And I know there's a lot of tension there, right? I mean, a lot of guys were here today. We're serving communion, and Wendell comes up from, a park, from the park, and he just starts talking, right? My favorite story ever, ever, was three years ago, four years ago, we were meeting over at the Iglesia building, and I was preaching. I was probably a good 10 minutes from being done. And uh, one of our great friends from the park who decided that, we, we, those of you who don't know, we do a Bible study and, and lunch at the, in the park with all of our homeless friends every Wednesday at noon. You're all welcome to come. We've been doing it for about seven years. And we pick up oftentimes the guys that want to come. And uh, so you'll see some of those folks coming here from time to time. And, and I was preaching. I was 10 minutes from being done. One of the guys stood up who had had plenty to drink from the night before. And he goes, and all the people said, and everybody just goes, amen. And I was like, guess we're done here today. And I just, done with that point? We just done. We just ended church just like that. Sometimes that happens, right? I want to be a people that just live there, man. I want to live there. I want to live out there. I want to do church in the park and a neighborhood carnival. We exist with people that don't 
recognize the right way to do things from a church standpoint. Like, this is what Jesus did. Instead of hanging out at the temple in the middle of the feast, he went all the way over to the east gate and hung out with people that were broken. God, that's who I want to be. I want to be that church. Yeah, sometimes it's loud. Sometimes the lyrics aren't right. Sometimes the kids go crazy, right? It's just true. But you know what? It's okay. As a church, right, I want to see the beautiful grace-filled forest. I want to focus less on the trees and a lot more on what God is doing around us. And the same is true for your life. Quit focusing on the singular problem, issue, person, fear, failure, finance, whatever it is, and see the way that God is alive around you. Focus on the beautiful, God-filled, grace-filled forest, right? In front of the God who stands there saying, I love you. I came for you. Do you want to be made well? Let's pray together. God, I thank you for the opportunity to gather here this morning. I thank you for worship. I thank you that your word is true. It is just true. God, I pray that you would convict our hearts and you would challenge us and that we might be a people, individuals that said, God, I want to be made whole. I want to be made well. I'm not waiting on magic waters for you to come in and fix one singular problem. Like, I want my whole life turned over to you. And God, I believe you can do it. As hard as that is to say sometimes, I really do believe it. And not just in other people, but I believe you can do it in me. So help me trust you. And as a church, God, help us be a church, a group of people, the ecclesia, the gathering of people that say, that's what we want, man. We want a little instability. We want to see the person carrying the mat. And instead of saying, why are you carrying your mat? We say, I can't believe you're walking. How incredible is that? God, you are so good. We pray that as we close our time, you would hear our worship, you would be exalted and lifted up. And we ask this in Jesus' holy and perfect name. And all the people said, amen. Let's stand together and continue in worship.